there's this weird thing with economists, right? Like we always talk about, oh, monopoly is bad. Competition is good. But then when it comes to money, we're like, oh, no, no, just the Federal Reserve can do the money. Hello there from Austin, Texas. How are you all doing? You're keeping well. I'm out here now making a film. We finished our sprint of shows that I was making with Danny, and I'm working on the next part of my Follow the Money series, which is a show all about Bitcoin mining and energy. I'm here in Austin. Tomorrow we head out to Dallas, and then I'm off to Tulsa. Got loads of sites we're going to be visiting. I'm really excited to make this. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Josh Hendrickson on the phone. Now, this is an interview that Danny brought to me. He is an associate professor of economics. And with Josh, I really wanted to dig into what that actually means, how he teaches, especially as somebody who cares or understands about Bitcoin, what relevance that has to what he's teaching to his students. So we dig into that, but we get into a whole bunch of things. We discuss uh, sovereign debt, inflation versus deflation, and what Bitcoin can be. We also get into what economists get wrong about Bitcoin, which is the title of the show, so which is very cool. Listen, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out to me. I've received so many emails about the show I made with Odell. It's unbelievable. I must have been over 100. So if I haven't got back to you yet, please do accept my apology. I will reply soon. I'm gradually working through them. But if you do want to discuss this or anything, please do get in touch. Okay, on to Josh. Hope you enjoy the show. Josh, hi, how are you? Very good. Thank you for coming in and doing this. Uh, you came in from Mississippi, right? Yeah. So that's the um, the spelling bee word that kids learn. Yeah, every kid in the United States, I think that's the first big word they, spe- they spell. Can you spell it, Danny? I just Googled it. <laughs> Would you have got it right? Uh, probably not. All right, I'm going to have a go. Uh, M-I-S-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-I-S-
what materials you want to use. So there's a lot of there's a lot of leeway to kind of teach your brand of economics, I guess. And does that evolve over time? Do you, I mean, how long have you been doing this? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been teaching, well, I've been, an, so I've been doing it, I guess this is my 12th year. And I would say most of my classes, other than maybe like the introductory classes are never the same from one time to the next, because there's always something new that I want to talk about, or there's some way of explaining something that I didn't think of before, or that, you know, I think might be easier for students to understand or, or something like that, or that might better relate to uh, what the students are interested in or what's going on in the world or, you know, things like that. So the students will come in and bring things they want to discuss? Well, a lot of times you can kind of just figure out what they're interested in. Right. Um, like one of the things I used to do with uh, my syllabus is I used to just list too much stuff. Like I just, there were be too much stuff to cover in one semester, but I would put it there and then I would just kind of gauge what the students were interested in. And then we would just kind of drop certain things that they didn't seem to be interested in and just focus on the stuff that they, that, that they just either wanted to learn or that they had some, you know, inherent interests in before they even came in the class. And did you major in economics yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, as an undergrad, I started out as a history major and then I, uh, found economics and after I found economics, then um, I ended up making it my minor, and then I went and got a master's and a PhD in economics. Okay, cool. Well, so I studied economics at A level in the UK. I don't know if you understand, you know, our like uh, education structure. I don't understand it, and I think I shouldn't, because I'm currently <laughs> department chair, and occasionally our students go take classes uh, in England, and then they will send it to me, and they will say, "What is this? Uh, what is this transfer as?" Right. And I can never figure out what, what the levels are. So we do, up until 16, you you prepare for something called your GCSEs and you'll, you'll do 9, 10, 11 subjects depending on who you are and, you know, how you know, how hard working you are or, you know, or if you're a dumbass, you might drop a couple. <laughs> um, and your main GCSE years are from like, 13, 13 to 16? Well, 11 to 16, isn't it? Yeah, but it gets more serious at yeah, 14, I think. It's like two main years where you where you do your uh, mock exams and then some people take, it's like if you're a maths genius, you might take it a year early. Um, and then once that's done, when you're 16 to 18, you go into something called sixth form, which is two years, and you study something called your A-levels, where you tend to pick three or four subjects. And that's what we call college. Do we call that college? Yeah, it's like sixth form college, yeah. It's still school for me. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, they didn't call it school. Interesting, uh, college. Interesting. Um, yeah. So if you're um, if you're less intelligent, you go to college and do your A levels. But if you're super smart like me, you stay in school. <laughs> I didn't do A levels. Did you? <laughs> no. What the fuck? I went to college and did audio engineering. Really? Yeah. If you're really dumb, you go and do a uh, <laughs> you go specialize in something like audio engineering. <laughs> uh, no. So A levels you do for two years, or you go to college, and but the A levels is where you choose to kind of like specialize, and that's before university. So. I did economics, classical civilization, and geography. Um, but when we studied economics, it was split into two sections, micro and macro. And the uh, entire macro part was uh, Keynesian economics, nothing else. I'd never even heard of Austrian economics until I uh, discovered Bitcoin. With what you're doing, what schools of economics are you teaching? Are you teaching schools of economics? Are you testing them? Like, I'm really intrigued to this. So I wouldn't say that, like there's a focus on a particular school. It's more, there's a focus on particular things that you want them to learn. 
Um, I think at an introductory level, people in the U.S. are probably still getting like a Keynesian education. So then they take like principles of macro. Most of the textbooks are very sort of Keynesian. They're very, if you picked up a textbook 50 years ago and you picked one up today, like for macro, it's probably not that much different. That's why I don't use the book when I teach principles of macro, but yeah. (laughs) So what do you use to teach principles of macro? Um, I usually just use my own notes. So like I've kind of written up my notes over time in narrative form and I just give them to the students. So you've probably got your own book in here. Um, I mean, probably, I don't, but I don't know that, I don't know what the market is for it because if everybody else is selling the, the Keynesian textbook, then maybe they don't care about the notes that I have. They maybe, might, the, maybe there's no market for it. They might be teaching Josh economics <laughs> in the future. <laughs> okay. So this is really interesting. So they could go to one college and learn kind of, or they could go to different colleges and learn almost two separate ways of understanding economics? Yeah, like in the U.S., um, if you go back to like the 70s and 80s, there were like distinct brands at different schools. Huh. So people kind of would self-select. Um, like the Harvard, MIT, like Northeastern universities, like they all were sort of Keynesian. Um, Chicago um, was very sort of like monetarist, like Milton Friedman and uh, his students. And then like at UCLA, they had like a very distinct uh, UCLA approach to economics, which really focused on things like property rights and um, transaction costs and just like how markets work in general. And then, but then also the people at UCLA were actually really distinct because at most schools, you've always, you've always had people who are kind of like micro people and macro people. But at UCLA, you kind of like all of those guys were just everything. Like they would write macro papers, they would write micro papers. Um, and I think a lot of it was, is even when they were writing macro papers, a lot of it was, um, you know, if you understood micro better, you wouldn't make this bad argument. Huh. Interesting. And so when you're grading people and you do the grading, yeah. mm-hmm. so are you grading them based on how you believe they've understood what you've been teaching? Yeah. So usually the, the way that I give exams is I usually give like short answer questions that kind of leaves it open where they can kind of, um, you know, explain, you know, um, how to use economics to answer the question. And so if they really, what I'm grading them on is not so much like, did they write the answer that I would have written? It's really like, are they using what they've learned about economics, you know, to kind of work their way through the question and kind of figure out what, what it is that, um, or, you know, it's more about like learning how to answer questions than like what the answer should be, I think. So there's a certain amount of fluidity to to the economics. Whereas well, like when I was taught it, it was quite rigid. The questions we were asked were quite rigid. They wanted quite rigid answers. Well, I think that it kind of also depends on who teaches it. Yeah. Um, so when I teach, I never give multiple choice exams or anything like that. Everything is always like short answer essay kind of stuff. Um, but you know, a lot of people, if the, if it's a big class, for example, they'll just give like a multiple choice exam because they don't want to go through a hundred, you know, um, exams where there's, you know, 10 short answer questions. That takes a long time. Huh. That's a shame though. Yeah. I mean, it's just, well, I mean, it depends. It depends on your teaching load. I mean, if you're, if you have like a really high teaching load, like you might literally just not have time to do that. But if you, if you have a, um, 
if you have a smaller teaching load, then, you know, it, it lends itself well to being more creative and, um, and also like allowing for more open, open-ended stuff when you're giving exams. So that's kind of interesting because say with math, math is fairly fixed. Yeah. The answers are fairly fixed up until the level I learned. I mean, I've got no idea what higher maths or university math is like. Maybe there's some creativity in there, but it sounds like you're supporting an idea that people can be creative in their answers, which sounds to me like there's room for a lot of debate within economic theory. Yeah, so to some extent, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I, like, the way that I think about economics is economics isn't really teaching you what to think, it's teaching you how to think. Okay. So when I'm asking the question, really what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, can you use the tools uh, that, you know, you've learned in the class to relate to this particular example? I mean, I don't necessarily think it's that different than than math. I think it's different than math is typically taught. But, you know, um, if you're taking calculus or something and they teach you how to take a derivative and you, and you, you learn like the rules, um, you know, to take a derivative, you know, you can memorize the rules and things like that. But if they give you some practical example, uh, you know, where you need to know the slope of a curve, then you need to know that you need to take a derivative and you need to know how to do that. And so, I mean, there's different ways to teach where you're sort of leaving it more open to the student to kind of show you what they know rather than just kind of repeating back to you what you told them. Well, it's one of the things I found most interesting about going down this Bitcoin rabbit hole is seeing there's all these different alternative theories on economics, you know, the traditional Keynesian versus Austrian, but also uh, the certain kind of like uh, internet personalities who have a different ideas or challenging different ideas. Steve Keen's one, I don't know if you know him, he's been on my podcast. Was it Rebel Economics or something? Or, you know, there's, there's like different people like that who have different ideas. Uh, Stephanie Kelton we had on the show, who's a big MMT fan, I'm going to get into that with you at some point. <laughs> Jeff um, Snyder. Jeff Snyder, yeah, who talks a lot about the euro-dollar system. Um, uh, and that kind of debate around economics, I find super interesting. Um, and it's, you might be wondering why I'm asking you so much about the, being a teacher, but uh, like I'm really under, I'm yeah. interested in the fundamentals here. Do you also therefore drive debate within your classes? Yeah, I think it depends on what the topic is. So some of the time you're just trying to figure out like, um, you know, to give like a ridiculous example, like if you teach somebody supply and demand and you just draw like supply and demand curves on a graph, you know, they can move them around, they can see how prices change and that sort of thing. But then, but you don't really care about whether they can do that or not. Like it, you, or at least you shouldn't. But it lends itself well to questions where you're just like, oh, here, just like draw a supply and demand graph and that makes it easy to grade and things like that. But really what you would, you know, what you would really want to do is actually just say to the student, okay, there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. What happens to the price of oil? And so if they understand supply and demand, this is very easy. If they don't understand supply and demand, then they're like, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. And so... Um, and so a lot of the open-ended stuff isn't necessarily about debate. It's just kind of about getting you to apply what you've learned. So do you understand why you're learning supply and demand? Do you understand why um, this concept is useful, you know, for understanding the things that you observe in the world? So the reason I'm asking these questions, they're kind of leading questions, but uh, I kind of feel like the 
certainly where I am in the UK, the economy is a bit of a mess at the moment. Um, and I feel like we're there because of the decisions. You know, you maybe would point, point to the Bank of England, maybe you point to the government. But it seems like either the people making decisions don't understand economics or they understand it and they don't care about the implications. So you as somebody who understands economics, we're obviously in challenging situation both in the US and the UK and Europe at the moment. How do you observe this? I think it's hard to judge people's motivations for why they're doing what they're doing. I also think it's hard too because a lot of what we observe is not based on, you know, single decisions. Um, you know, it's small decisions that kind of add up over time. You know, most of the time when you have some sort of problem, um, it's because of like a series of bad decisions that have happened over time. And those aren't even necessarily the same people. Um, and also, you know, I mean, there is an aspect of uh, short-sightedness sometimes with policy because there's a current problem. You want to solve that current problem. And so somebody has a solution or, or says they have a solution to that problem and it sounds reasonable. And so you go ahead and do it and then you realize later um, that, you know, actually there are these costs that you didn't anticipate. Um, so sometimes it's just unexpected. Other times, you know, um, it, it also might be that politicians care more about what's going on now than what's going on later because later they won't be in office and now, you know, they need to keep their position. And so, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of different incentives that go into these political decisions. And yeah. it's, it's hard to judge their, their motivation. Um, mostly we just have to kind of, I mean, I see the role of economists as being the people who can kind of stand up and say, um, hey, there's a problem here. You need to do something about this. And here are the things that, you know, here are the sorts of things that you could do. Um, and, uh, but, you know, but this is also hard because I see in my own profession, there are lots of people who are just as political and partisan as the politicians. And so they're not always giving the advice that might be sort of optimal. They're giving the advice that works to, you know, push their own political agenda or political party forward. Yeah, we've talked about it a lot on this show that the political cycle, the depending on when you are, the four or five year cycle is something that is unhelpful for making sometimes the correct decisions with regards to things that actually are like long term decisions. We um we had a guy on the show recently called Dan Tubb, uh, King Bingo on Twitter, uh, and we were talking about debt, and we specifically use the lens of the UK. Uh, so the UK debt at the moment, uh, I mean, was it two trillion? Or, I mean, that number aside, uh, the annual receipts for the government's about one point, or well, say one trillion, but the um, annual spend's about 1.1 trillion. So they're like running up an increase of the deficit every year by like 100 billion. Servicing the debt itself is 120 billion, more than the UK government spends on education. And the second, uh, the highest cost outside of that is the NHS, which is 200 billion a year. The NHS itself is failing, but there's no nobody who ever wants to try and change that and fix that or suggest that the NHS needs to, you know, they spend less money on the NHS is going to be in power because it's too, you know, so these political cycles make it very difficult to make the right long-term decisions. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I don't have a question. <laughs> no, but I think that's right. But I also think that in... If you look, like if you look at history, there are times when you see countries that have lots of debt. But the thing that's sort of different about now is if you look across history, 
um, people will point to periods where like, oh, like look how high Britain's debt to GDP ratio was. But if you actually know what's going on in history, it's because they had just fought a war. And the thing about wars is like they tend to end. And so when the war is over, you're no longer spending money on the war. And so there's this natural cut in spending that's going to happen. And if you look at how uh, like England historically paid for wars, it was by like smoothing out the cost in terms of taxes over time. And so you just have this huge increase in spending during the war. Then the spending comes back down and then you sort of gradually pay this back with taxes. And if you look at what's happened um, in the United States and Western Europe since World War II is like, you know, back when, when you look at those historical episodes back then, predominantly what states were spending money on was the military. And after World War II, um, states have essentially become insurance companies, right? They offer all sorts of, you know, uh, like we have social security in the United States, we have Medicaid, we have Medicare. These are just big like insurance, uh, you know, they're, they're just big in insurance schemes kind of. And so, um, but the thing is, is that those don't end. So there's no, it's not like a war where all of a sudden we're just no longer paying these things. Like these are, these are very long-term. And if you don't budget for those, um, for those things long-term, then, you know, you're going to see uh, a lot of debt in the future. And, you know, it's kind of unprecedented because we never had these sorts of policies, you know, before. I mean, frankly, we like, you know, countries just weren't rich enough to have these sorts of policies before. Um, are but, they rich enough now? Well, I mean, <laughs> maybe not, but the, uh, but I, but I think the thing is, is like, if you look at, um, if you look at like the last 400 years, you know, states have, you know, like the modern state is really very young in history and what the state does predominantly, uh, you know, for most of, uh, even the modern state was just uh, war and, you know, funding the military and, and things like that. Like all of these social programs are, are relatively new. And, um, and the belief was, is that, you know, um, we could provide these kinds of things because at the same time the state was developing, we had this rapid period of economic growth. And so people were kind of like, well, we've, we've developed this state. The state's very good at collecting tax revenue a lot better than it used to be like 200 years ago. And, um, you know, and then we have people that we want to help. And so we're going to use these, um, you know, we could use, you know, these tax revenues to, to do that. Now we can debate whether these are good ideas or not, but clearly like this is where a lot of the, the, the debt is coming from. And this is where a lot of the constraints on governments right now are coming from is that they have all of these obligations. And when it comes time to, you know, cutting spending, um, you know, cutting spending on the military when the war is over is not that difficult. Like telling somebody that they're not going to get social security is uh, not remotely the same thing, right? You're telling them you're going to take away a benefit from them that they uh, thought that they were going to get. And politically, that's that's far more difficult. But you as an economist, uh, and this is one of the first issues you've raised, you obviously consider this an issue? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the level of uh, debt that we see uh, the level of sovereign debt that we see is sort of unprecedented. And, and, in, and even when we compare it to these historical episodes, it's not, um, th those historical episodes don't really tell us how to go forward from here. Um, because those historical episodes, we were, you know, we were predominantly paying for war, not, you know, Medicare and social security. 
Danny, can you try and find that OBR, or do you have the slide from Dan Tub? Yeah. I'd just be interested now, now you've said that, Josh, to go through the list of items that the government spends money on to see to see where it goes, because that, that would be interesting. Because I guess the point you're trying to make is, is when people didn't have them, the other went without, or they were productive. Yeah, so if, if you... You know, if you didn't have um, welfare, you either, uh, one of the options, you lived on the street, you lived with family, or you were forced to go and get a job. Um, same if there's no uh, health support. You'd have to find a way that the government has tried to provide so many things. Have you got it? You want the list of public spending? Yeah. So it's national health care. Which is a, an insurance. Yeah. Public pensions. Which is an insurance. Social security. Which is an insurance. Education. Would you put education? I wouldn't call that insurance. Yeah. I mean, but, that's investment. But again, uh, it, it's in, it's in sort of the same category as: Are you going to tell people that you're not going to fund their schools? It's, mm. it's just as difficult as saying: Are you going to stop funding the NHS? I think. Yeah. Uh, then defense, state okay. protection, which I don't know what the difference between those two really is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, transport, general government, other public services. So transport. Is uh, probably similar to education in that it's not an insurance, but it is a public service. Okay. Um, yeah. So after transport, general government, other public services, and then debt interest. Huh. So that's kind of interesting. What What would you say the total is of those insurance items? It would be roughly nine hundred billion, something like that. Of the one point one trillion. Mm-hmm. You've not included education and transport, right? No, but they're transport. they're pretty low spends compared to the rest of the things. So that's kind of like 90%, 80%. That's actually, that was including debt interest as well, so maybe a bit less. Okay, but that's about, so look, 10% is debt interest and 80% is insurance. Huh. So that's really the problem. Yeah. And I guess with things like if people didn't have a pension, like a state pension, that's something they'd have to budget for through work. But then also if the government was spending considerably less, there'll be tax less, so people will be more productive, have more money to invest in themselves. Well, and one problem with the pensions is like we have this in, there are many states in the United States where state workers are entitled to a pension, but you also have like mismanagement of these pensions. Like one of the reasons why it's not, uh, why these things fail is like they just like bake in an assumption that they're just going to make 8% a year, even if they're like making 5% a year. Right, And so then you have all these unfunded liabilities, but the government's made this promise. And so um, then they have this difficult decision. Do we tell people, well, sorry, your benefits are going to be lower? Or do they just raise more tax revenue from somewhere else or, or borrow to pay these people the money that they owe them? I'm going to jump around a bit. Bear with me. Um, but in terms of government having to support these outgoings that they've agreed and committed to, and they can't support them through tax. They have found, as you said earlier, creative ways to create money, whether it's borrowing or... What are the range of ways it can create create money? Well, so I think one of the things in the United States is that um, there's been a concerted effort since World War I um, on the part of policymakers in the United States to make the dollar a global reserve currency. And the reason for that is, you know, um, there are naturally like tax ad- or, or trade advantages and things like that that come that come with that. But part of that is that, you know, if, if the dollar is a global reserve currency, there's an increase in the demand for dollars. And so, you know, you can create more dollars without um, 
uh, without necessarily creating inflation because you've got an increase in money demand and you're just meeting that money demand with new dollars. So you don't necessarily see this in prices. Um, I think for the most part, people aren't really holding dollars. They're holding U.S. treasuries. But again, that just makes it easier for the government to borrow, right? So there's a demand for these treasuries and the constraint is really like the interest that you're paying on that debt. But so if there's growing demand for your debt and you're just meeting that demand with more supply, you're not going to see a lot of that, uh, the, the changes in interest rates um, that would convince you to have more constraint on your borrowing. Um, so things like that ha have gone on. If you look at what's gone on since the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve has started paying interest on reserves. Um, and so what that's done is it's allowed, you know, banks to uh, just hold a bunch of reserves and make very passive income from the Fed by sitting on those reserves. But in the process, the Fed has dramatically increased the size of its balance sheet. And how does it do that? It goes out and buys government debt. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it's, if, if their balance sheet is growing, that means that they're holding more and more of government debt. And, you know, in the past, you know, again, there were, uh, there were mechanisms to kind of prevent that. But um, with interest on reserves, banks are just willing to hold on to those reserves. So you give them the, um, you know, you, you give them the reserves, you take the treasuries and, um, you know, there's no, there's no real change there. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Also, today we have my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically, so you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. 
all the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. As somebody who is an economist and observing what's happening, do you do you self-consider this long-term? Do you try and map out where you think we're headed with this? Because I remember growing up, and I certainly remember when I studied uh, A-level economics, we used to discuss, we used to, uh, discuss uh, surpluses and deficits, you know, the rainy day fund. I mean, we all have it personally. You know, if you can't pay your, you know, if you're, if you're doing well, you'll save a bit, and then, you know, maybe, I don't know, I'm not saying you personally, but maybe your wife loses her job, so you, you have to dip into your funds, or you, you know, your kid needs something, goes to school or college, like you have to manage that surplus and deficit yourself. Sometimes you go into debt. But like if you ever get to a place where you cannot service your debt, you lose your house, you lose your car. And historically, I remember this, you know, the government used to run a surplus or a deficit. It just seems like everyone only runs a deficit now. So do you map this out long term and do you consider where this we might be headed with this? Yeah, I think there's certainly reason for concern here and you already see it when you look at um, countries like Russia and China and things like that, they're already sort of diversifying their reserves. They're holding, you know, fewer dollars and they're holding more like um, commodities like gold. And I don't think that that is, uh, I mean, that, that partly has to do with geopolitical factors, but I also think that it partly has to do with just the amount of amount of debt that is being accumulated in the Western world. Um, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen in the in the future because we don't really know what the trajectories are for these sorts of things. And we don't know like if there's going to be some sort of significant event that kind of convinces governments that they have to do something differently or, or something like that. I think that the situation doesn't look particularly good. Um, it doesn't look like um, something that's sustainable in the long term. And I also think the difficulty here is, is that um, this interest rate constraint that governments face when they're accumulating debt, it doesn't tend to happen gradually. It tends to happen all at once. So, you know, countries that have problems um, that ultimately like result in default and things like that, you tend to see some significant event and it causes some major change in the interest rate. And now all of a sudden they have debt that they need to roll over, but it's way too expensive for them to roll over the debt. And now they have to make a difficult decision about what they're going to do. But those things happen very suddenly. They don't, you know, it's, it's not like you just see this kind of gradual increase in your interest rate every year. And then you kind of, and it forces people to think about it. Generally it happens all at once. There's some kind of significant event that maybe pushes you over the edge and then, now you know you're forced to make these difficult decisions. So when you say it doesn't look good, what are the potential risks here? Because people listen to this show, yes, they're Bitcoiners, but actually they're also people just generally interested in themselves and uh, how the economic conditions might affect them and their families. That, that we actually, interestingly, this show we make today, 
might do better than some of the more leading voices in Bitcoin because people are hungry for understanding about economics and macro. What are the potential risks that you're seeing ahead? And do you see scenarios where maybe even the US would default on its debt? Well, I think the US would be like sort of last in line. Um, so there would be warnings. I, I, I don't think the US will just because um, it's much more likely that some other significant Western country would go first. And then that would probably scare other Western countries into, you know, uh, reform. Um, but yeah, I think that like, um, I think that like government debt is like this really difficult thing to, to think about because on the one hand, we, we like to kind of compare it to a household, but they're not really like a household because if I run up too much debt, I can't go to my boss and say, Hey, I ran up a bunch of debt. And so now you're going to pay me, you know, 20% more next year so I can pay this down. <laughs> but the government kind of can do that because they collect tax revenue, right? So they're, they're collecting, um, money forcibly. And so, um, and so they have that recourse. Um, also in the United States, I mean, I, you know, I don't know that, that it would ever come to this, but the United States government actually does own a lot of wealth, you know, so they have, you know, they have national parks and all of these things and, um, you know, that land it's valuable. So like, um, so they have recourse like, um, for like meeting demands that maybe, you know, you or I would not necessarily have, um, but there's kind of this general, like the general thought experiment that you teach students, um, kind of like in like an intermediate level class is you say, okay, like, let's imagine that the government, um, issued a bunch of bonds today and then never again, they just spent a bunch of money today. They didn't collect any taxes to cover the spending. They just borrowed the money and then they just kept borrowing over and over and over again. And so if they did that, um, you know, they would just owe the amount they borrowed plus interest and then the interest just accumulates on, on that debt. And so then the question is like, under what conditions could this be sustainable? And the condition on which it's sustainable is if the economy grows faster than the interest rate, then like debt as a percentage of GDP is going to fall. And so if debt as a percentage of GDP is falling, it's getting easier to pay back that debt and you don't really have to to worry about it. This is one reason why people look at the debt to GDP ratio to try to figure out whether government debt is sustainable or not. But it's not really the ratio itself that people care about. It's, it's um, is the ratio growing? Because if that, you know, if government debt is growing relative to GDP, then that's telling you that it's getting, it's getting harder to pay back that debt. And even though that's like an overly simplistic example where you effectively have a government running a Ponzi scheme, like the, you know, like it's still useful as a thought exercise to think about, you know, under what conditions could you actually do this as a government that's able to collect taxes? You know, how would you be able to, how would you be able to operate? And I just think that um, the amount of debt is growing and I think the reason for concern is there, there doesn't seem to be any kind of urgency about what to do about the debt. Um, and I think part of that is because there's this difference between households and governments. There's this, people know that the government is not really like a household. You know, they have a little bit more leeway to do things that a household wouldn't do, uh, wouldn't be able to do. You know, they have the ability to collect taxes. And so for them, um, you know, the, the constraint isn't, uh, sort of the same as it is for the household. And I think that that's well known. And I think it's well known among politicians. Um, but the question is, is, uh, you know, at what point 
at what point do you accumulate too much debt? And at what point is even the government bumping up against that constraint? And, um, and I think that when you, when you look around the Western world, um, it just seems like, uh, it, it seems like a massive experiment to find out. And do you feel like we're heading towards it breaking? Or do we not even know whether it will break? When you say it's a massive experiment, is it a potential they just keep increasing debt? And yeah, I mean, I don't see there. There doesn't seem to be any. Um, there doesn't seem to be any real motivation to to do anything about it. Like, there's no. There doesn't seem to be any sort of urgency, even in countries that are of much greater concern um, than um, than the U.S. to do anything about it. Um, if you look at Japan, I mean, Japan is in the process of just buying, all, uh, having the central bank buy all of its debt. Um, you know, the, the central bank owns like a majority of the outstanding debt of the of the government. Like we've never seen anything like that. So, I mean, I don't know what else to call that other than an experiment. I've had a few people on the show come on and discuss inflation. And there's, n- there's never a consistent uh, definition of what causes it. Um some people say it's uh, like when I had Jeff Snyder on, he said, well, a lot of the inflation is the increase in prices we're seeing uh, following COVID. We had a supply shock uh, and that would lead to the increase in prices. A lot of Bitcoin was talk about the debasement of the currency. Stephanie Kelvin would say, well, you can, you can increase the money supply. You know, it doesn't always lead to inflation. What is your position on this? So first of all, the MMT stuff is like a bait and switch. Okay. Like, um, if we're talking about long-term, so if we're talking about long-term, the answer is actually really simple. It's just excess money growth. The money supply is growing faster than money demand. And so prices are going to go up. Um, the reason I say like the MMT thing is kind of a bait and switch is that, you know, there are times when you can increase the money supply without generating a lot of price inflation. But that's generally because like there's elevated like money demand. And they, and they even give examples where they say things like, well, um, you know, imagine you decided to, um, you know, imagine the government created this program to buy every child in the United States a pony, and they were going to do so by just printing up money and buying ponies. And they would say, well, you know, the constraint here is that, um, you know, is the number of ponies. Well, yeah, what that means is like there's a resource constraint in the economy and that's what, that's what the quantity theory of money says. And so the quantity theory of money just says, you know, like if you are, um, you know, if you're growing the money supply faster than money demand, you get inflation. So it's just a different way of saying that. And it's this sort of bait and switch where it's kind of like, oh, we don't have to worry about the debt. We can pay for it with money creation. And well, won't that cause inflation? Well, not necessarily. Well, um, the evidence is pretty clear here on money growth and inflation. If you look at, you know, if you just take like the average of money growth and inflation um, over the last like 50 years for every, you know, um, you know, every country for which data is available, and then you just like plot those against each other, I mean, it's going to be pretty close to the 45 degree line on that graph. So what that means is there's a close to a one-to-one relationship between money growth and inflation. So the idea that um, the idea that we can just print money and it's costless to do so, I mean, there are certain instances where you can do that. Like in a recession, when people are sort of hoarding money, if you're increasing the money supply, it's not really going to lead to higher prices because 
people want to hold more money. So that extra money that's out there in circulation actually just uh, facilitates people's ability to, to hold additional money balances. But, um, but I mean, it's not hard to think about just basic thought experiments that demonstrate that that's wrong. I mean, if, if the president came out tomorrow and said, we're going to re-denominate the currency and $1 is now going to be $10 and $5 is now going to be $50 and et cetera, right? If they just added a zero onto every denomination of, of the currency, prices would just go up by a factor of 10. I mean, that's, you know, this is just a, it's a nominal unit, right? So if you, if you increase, you know, if you just add a zero onto everything, then all the prices would go up by a factor of 10. And so when you're increasing the money supply, you're doing, you're doing something like that, just on a smaller scale. Hmm. But that flaw in MMT seems really obvious. Um, well, why do you think it's gained such like popularity? I mean, I, I don't know why it's popular. It's popular on the internet. It's not popular like in the economics profession. But Stephanie Kelton was working. Yeah. Was it? Who? No, it wasn't Andrew Yang. Was it? Was it Bernie Sanders? She was working. Yeah, Bernie with? Sanders. So yeah. like they're obviously taking it quite seriously. Well, Bernie Sanders is taking it seriously, but Bernie Sanders also like it's this, this is. I mean, I, I don't know because this gets to motivation, so I can't speak to people's motivations. But if you want to dramatically expand the size of the government and people are complaining about how much debt that there is, if you have somebody who comes along and says, well, actually, we could pay for it with money creation with very little cost, it seems to me that like that might be somebody that you might be attracted to as an advisor, even if that's not uh, realistic. Mm. Bernie Sanders likes giving away things for free. <laughs> he... It doesn't surprise me he wants to give money away for free. Yeah. Um, we, had a, we had a chap on the show before called Ovik Roy. Do you know him? Uh, I don't. So he works for a think tank uh, in Austin called Freeop. Uh, was it the f something for economic or opportunity? Blah, blah, blah. Daddy will look it up. The um, Foundation of Research of Equal Opportunity. Yeah. Uh, they did a study on inflation and the study uh, highlighted how uh, inflation increases the wealth gap. And he said even at very little inflation, even at, I don't know, 0.1% or whatever the number was, he said it still uh, has a catastrophic effect on the poorest in society. Um, at the same time, I was taught that deflation is bad. Deflation is terrible because people hoard money and they don't spend. Um, is that true? Is that a, is that a, have we been gaslighted with that? So it depends on what's causing deflation. Okay. So there's kind of two different causes. Um, one cause is, yeah, like this kind of, uh, like the Milton Friedman, Anna Schwartz story of the Great Depression was essentially that um, you had this, uh, you had these bank failures that was increasing money demand, and but that money demand wasn't being met with an increase in the money supply. And so that led to like more hoarding of money and um, and deflation and things like that. Um, so there, there's also an alternative kind of theory of the depression, which is more focused on like the gold market. And it was the idea that all of these countries tried to go back on the gold standard, but the United States uh, had most of the gold. Um, and so there was like, so at first uh, in the 1920s, uh, sort of as uh, England and then France tried to accumulate more gold, like gold was flowing out of the United States and into um, and and into Britain and then into France, and and the basic idea here is is that under a gold standard, like the supply and demand for gold determines the price level 
right? Because the nominal price of gold is fixed everywhere. So all other prices have to adjust to whatever's going on in the gold market. So if you have this massive global increase in the demand for gold, you would experience deflation. But you could potentially, um, you, you could have potentially mitigated this by just allowing the distribution of that gold to change. So if the United States had allowed gold to flow out more to England and France, and actually for uh, most of the 1920s, this is what happened. Um, the United States and, and Britain sort of allowed gold to flow out um, initially into Britain and then into France. And, um, but the French had, you know, a ridiculously high like reserve re ratio that was imposed on their gold by their, by their government. And also then the United States started to see stock prices going up and the Federal Reserve got concerned that their policies were causing uh, like a stock market bubble. And so what they started doing is the United States increased its demand for gold. France continued to increase its demand for gold. Uh, and then, you know, the British for some time uh, kind of tried to accommodate this. And then at a certain point they were like, okay, we can't accommodate it anymore. But the US also wasn't willing to change their stance. And so then what you ended up with is you ended up with this like dramatic period of deflation as everybody's trying to get more gold. Um, but so regardless of whether you believe the, the kind of uh, gold version of the story or whether you believe the kind of Milton Friedman, Anna Schwartz story of the depression, the basic idea is that this deflation is harmful. Um, and, but it's essentially harmful because there's excess demand for money. That you know, and in the case of gold, like it can't be met, right? Um, and in the case of you know just bank deposits and things like that, um, you know it can't be met because the Federal Reserve wasn't um, you know uh, increasing the amount of reserves uh, that they were giving to banks and things. So either story, that that sort of deflation is incredibly harmful, and it's incredibly harmful because it, it's it's a monetary problem. It can't um, you know, and it's an aggregate problem. But deflation is not always and everywhere bad. So if you live in a growing economy, um, you know, uh, that's going to tend to put downward pressure on prices all else equal. And so under the gold standard, um, you know, the reason that you had relatively constant prices over time is that the economy is growing at, say, 3%. And so on average, the supply of gold is growing at 3%. Um, but then uh, the demand for gold is also growing at about 3% because people have more income, they want to hold more money. And so what that does is um, supply is growing by 3%, demand is growing by 3%, prices are going to stay relatively constant. Now, gold didn't always grow at the same rate as the economy. And so if you're going through a period of high productivity, that means that like these other industries are growing faster than um, the supply of gold, in, in which case you would have deflation. And in the United States, we had that in the late 1800s, and it was not it was not painful at all. It was actually, um, you know, there there are actually benefits to that kind of process. So, you know, long term modest deflation is fine. Um, you know, uh, policy induced deflation is very bad. Hmm. So, as a as a Bitcoiner. Um, we're still in this kind of world where sometimes where you beat people and I say, oh, what do you do? I say, I've got a Bitcoin podcast. I'm like, sometimes a little bit embarrassed saying the Bitcoin. I even sometimes say, I do I have an economics podcast. We look at economics through the lens of Bitcoin. But uh, it's still, it, it, you know, it's gone from being um, something that is just, 
used by nerds to actually being considered a commodity by some people. It's used as money. You know, within Bitcoin circles, it's taken very seriously. But outside eyes uh, can still be very dismissive. Certainly people within the uh, economics field. Um, so I'm always interested when there's somebody who's an economist who likes Bitcoin or is interested in Bitcoin. Um, like a very obviously basic uh, first question, like how did you discover Bitcoin and how many touch points did you, like, did you dismiss it immediately like some of us? So, well, I discovered it very early. Um, I found out about it in April 2011. So I heard a, I heard, basically I heard a podcast about it and they were talking about how it worked and what it was. And, um, and the podcast was actually with, uh, Gavin Andreessen and he was just talking about, you know, how it works and, um, you know, what the, what the goals were and that sort of thing. And then it sounded interesting to me and it sounded interesting to me because at the time I had just finished graduate school. And one of the things that I was really interested in was this literature on like um, monetary alternatives, like free banking and things like that. And so what I ended up finding out as I kind of looked more into Bitcoin is that the guys that I was reading um, who were um, working on free banking and things like that were being cited by, um, you know, Hal Finney on like the Bitcoin forums and things like that. So... I think there's a famous post. So one of the guys that uh, I had read on um, on free banking is is uh, George Selgin, and hmm. Finney had this post um, on the forums where somebody was saying, "How how is this going to scale? You can't just have you know 21 million coins. Like it's not going to be enough. Like you're going to have to like it would have to scale. How can you have a trillion dollar economy and you know 21 million coins or something?" And and Finney's response was essentially like a reference to Selgin's book, like, well, you know, with, you know, this is just like free banking under the gold standard, you know, like, um, and reference Selgin's book. And so that sort of piqued my interest. And I kind of realized that, uh, like there was, there was more to this than just, um, you know, some kind of like technological innovation. And so, um, as I kind of dug into it, you know, I found out about, you know, uh, the cypherpunks and what their goals were and what they were trying to achieve and how long they had been like, you know, thinking about this topic. Um, and then that kind of convinced me that, okay, like they're thinking about the same things that I'm thinking about. They've been trying to solve this problem for a long time. Like this is really interesting. And so I just kind of was interested ever since. So interesting, we, we covered free banking on the show. Uh, my friend Nick Carter wrote a, a paper or an article for, was it Bitcoin Magazine, about free banking. Um, so that that is something, uh, as an economist, you're, you're a proponent of? You believe in free banking? We should have free banking? Yeah, I mean, I think like the, um, I, I don't think it's a radical idea to think that we should have, um, so we're economists. And so there's this weird thing with economists, right? Like we always talk about, oh, monopoly is bad competition is good. But then when it comes to money, we're like, oh, no, no, just the Federal Reserve can do the money. And so uh, to me, um, I was just naturally interested in this question, like what is special about money that would make us think that we want to uh, have a central bank or that we have to have a central bank that controls the money supply? And, you know, and so that just got me really interested in, you know, thinking about competitive alternatives. 
Well, isn't it a case of whoever controls the monopoly is a supporter of the monopoly? <laughs> so if, if governments control the monopoly of money, it's obviously within their best interest to have that monopoly. But a free market for, for money you know, would limit the, the things that government can do. Well, but I think too, like the, the thing is though, is um, I think it's understandable why the government wants it. Um, but my question is why were, why did economists um, seem to think that this was the one thing in the economy that shouldn't be subject to competition? Is it because they like the idea of economic theory around how central banks set interest rates and I actually think it's a complete misreading of monetary and uh, financial history. Oh, wow. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, uh, you'll hear people make comments all the time where they say, well, well, of course we have to have a central bank. Look at all the banking failures that we had, you know, in the United States. And, um, and so when you look at it from that perspective, like that makes a lot of sense, right? You say, well, you know, there have been a lot of banking panics. There's a lot of banking failures. And so clearly like having some central bank that could be lender of last resort maybe could solve, you know, uh, maybe not all of these problems, but some of these problems. Another insurance. And yeah, and, but the problem is, is that uh, this is a complete misreading of history. Like one of the reasons why we had so many bank failures in the United States is that there were restrictions on note issuance. So you would literally have problems at banks during like harvest time when farmers need more money because the bank can't print more banknotes to give them during this time. And so in other words, there's seasonal fluctuations in the demand for banknotes, but banks couldn't always meet them because of, um, you know, regulations that were put on these banks. Uh, and so, um, and also I think it completely ignored, I think when they make this argument, they completely ignore like why these central banks were created. I mean, the Bank of England wasn't created so that they could micromanage interest rates in the British economy. It's for war, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was created because they wanted, uh, because they had just had the glorious revolution uh, you know, they needed to, uh, they had a lot of debt. Um, there were these Jacobite uprisings. France was, you know, uh, supporting the old king. They wanted to go to war and the new king needed to raise money, but he didn't really have a constituency to raise money from. And it was going to be hard for him to issue debt because, you know, what used to happen in, um, in these scenarios is like, you know, a king would get deposed and what does the new king do? He says, remember the debt that the old king issued? Well, we're not going to honor that because that was his debt. That's not my debt. And so if you are an investor and the king is trying to uh, borrow money, why do you want to lend money to a king that might not last? Who, you know, whose opponent has the support of the French? Um, so, you know, they came up with this scheme to, uh, consolidate government debt at a lower interest rate um, by agreeing to charter the Bank of England in exchange for them consolidating the debt and at a lower interest rate. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast. And I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is shop.ledger.com. 
Next up, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. So are you one of these supporters of the end of the Fed? idea and is it even possible i i I mean i it's to me i don't even talk about it because i don't even think that it's a i I don't even think that it's feasible at this point i mean you know like if you were trying to um if you were trying to get rid of a central bank it would be um it, it would be much better to try to create like try to allow greater competition um because i don't you know like Barring some catastrophic catastrophic failure, I don't think central banks are going anywhere. And you can make a possible argument that actually one way to do it would be through something like Bitcoin, an alternative, rather than dismantling. Well, but I guess it also depends on what on sort of what you mean, because I I hear people say things all the time like, "Well, Bitcoin is um, like the the thing that Bitcoin is going to do is it's going to return us to um, sort of responsible governance." And I don't really buy this because a lot of the constraints that Bitcoin places on governments were constraints that the gold standard created on governments and the government and the governments found ways around this um, all the time. Um, in fact, like the gold, they used the gold standard to their advantage. Uh, you know, when the British would go to war, they would suspend the gold standard and then they would promise, but they would promise, you know, once the war is over, we'll go back at the previous parity. And, uh, and they did. But the reason that they did this is it allowed them a, a greater ability to finance the war. Because what you're doing is like, um, you know, people have a tendency to think, okay, you're going to go to war. You might want to pay for that with money creation. Well, that's true. But also at the same time, like you can't destroy your currency um, it, by paying for the war because that creates a whole separate problem. And it also makes the funding unsustainable, right? If you have some sort of hyperinflation and nobody's willing to take your your currency, then you're not going to be able to borrow. You're not going to be able to generate any revenue from, you know, like there is a maximum um, amount of revenue that you can generate from money creation. And so uh, if you resort to too much money creation, you're actually going to be on the wrong side of that revenue curve. And so as a government, what you would like to do is you would like to raise as much revenue possible through those means. But in the process, you have to anchor money demand so that you can prevent... um, 
you can prevent, you know, inflation from getting out of control. So like the British would promise to go back at the previous parity. Well, why was that valuable? It was valuable because you knew any period of inflation that happened during the war would be offset by a period of deflation after the war. And so that sort of anchors people's expectations where they're kind of like, okay, well, you know, this is going to be a turbulent time, but you know, when this is over, like, um, you know, will return to gold at the previous parity. And so, you know, there are people who are willing to continue to hold those banknotes all through the, all through the war. And, you know, they might not be willing to, if there was no promise of going back. So there are lots of ways that they sort of manipulate the system to, to create, um, ways around these kinds of constraints. And so I'm not sure it's as easy as just saying, well, you know, uh, Bitcoin is scarce. And so, you know, it will put a, it will put a limit, especially if states start to sort of adopt this. Well, you know, they adopted the gold standard. They co-opted the gold standard. Is there a, is there a slight difference here in that with the gold standard, um, the price can be set or fixed by government, but on a Bitcoin standard with something that is globally liquid, uh, can be instantly bought or sold uh, in multiple markets. That the price is really actually set by the market itself. It, it's like it's it's harder to fix, and it's more of a bottom up standard on a Bitcoin standard than a top down from gold. Well, I would say that th- this gets back to the difference between real versus nominal. So what I mean is, the governments were setting the price. Uh, so if I define like one dollar as equal to one twentieth of an ounce of gold, then an ounce of gold is just twenty dollars. And so, you know, that's the official price of, of gold. But that's a nominal price. So when the when there's a um when there's a gold discovery or there's a change in the demand for gold, supply and demand says that prices have to adjust. Well, the nominal price can't adjust because it, it's fixed by, you know, the definition of the uh of the dollar, right? But the real price can change and the real price can change by these other prices adjusting to it. So I don't know that it necessarily prevents that from happening. Also, like it it also depends on what a world looks like if, um, you know, it it also depends on what a world looks like if, you know, there's widespread adoption of Bitcoin, right? If states start adopting Bitcoin, what's to stop them from saying that $1 is now, you know, um, one dollar is just now worth, you know, 6,000 sats or something. And that's, you know, um, and, you know, that, that's how they define the unit of account. But, the, but they have tried that in you know, places like Lebanon, Argentina, but you get black markets for money anyway. And, and I feel like Bitcoin makes black markets for money even easier. So I think maybe we're talking about two different things. Okay. So because... Um, if you try to, uh, because what's, what's going on, for example, in Argentina is like, they will say like, uh, oh, like, you know, one peso is equal to a dollar or something, but people can see that they're printing too many pesos for this to be possible. And so then that starts to break down. Um, I mean, the, the same sorts of things happened under the gold standard. And like, for example, in the United States, um, when like, prior to the Federal Reserve, you had banks that were issuing their own currencies that were redeemable in gold. Um, But there were discounts on these notes in certain places. Um, And it was just based on uh, the probability that, you know, you, like you were not going to get your money or you weren't going to get your gold back if you presented this bank note at that bank. And so, um, 
so I think like things like that, you know, can, can always exist, but I think that's a separate kind of issue is, is that, um, there's this issue of trying to wrestle with what does the state look like and do central banks exist and what are they doing if there's widespread adoption of Bitcoin? And I think that's a much harder question to answer, um, than, than people think. Because if you have state adoption, what does state adoption look like? Does that just mean that they're holding some on their balance sheet? Does it mean that they're defining uh, the dollar in terms of Bitcoin? Um, you know, like all of those questions are really important for thinking through what the world looks like under those circumstances. And to you, therefore, what is Bitcoin and what can it be? Like, do you think of it as a commodity? Do you think of it as a potential reserve asset? Some Bitcoiners think it could be all money. So, or is it just this weird own thing? No, I mean, I think that it, I mean, I think it, I think it's a, a little bit of a lot of things actually. I mean, I really still like, I know that it's like, it's fallen out of favor, but I really do still like, like the digital gold analogy because in a lot of ways it is just like a commodity like gold, but because it's digital, it has a lot of advantages over gold hmm. and you know, you can, you can take ownership of it very easily. Um, you know, you can, uh, you can transfer it very easily without having to like physically present anything to somebody. So I really like, like the digital gold, um, analogy, but I think, you know, there's a reason why a lot of these analogies exist and it's because there are elements of all of these analogies that kind of work. Hmm. What, what are the, what would be your main then criticisms of Bitcoin? What is it about it you don't like? That's a great answer. I, I don't No, I mean, I don't really know because in, in some sense, you know, it, it depends on, you know, it depends on the question that you're asking. Like, so for what I see it as and for what, um, for what I see it as and for what I see it doing, um, like to me, it's just something that, you know, exists and it's good that it exists. Um, it doesn't mean that it solves every problem. It doesn't mean that it, it you know, um, you know, it's, it's the answer to all problems, but I do think like there's an element, um, it, I think one of the things that is, uh, good about it is that it's giving people a way to store their wealth when they might not have an ability to store their wealth, uh, safely or, uh, or something like, you know, people talk about the volatility, um, of the price and things like that. And, but the thing is, is like, even if this was something that was only used by people who lived under dictators, like to me, like that, you know, it would still be valuable for the world. Like if you, you know, um, because I, I get this criticism a lot is that people will say, well, why do you care about this? And, um, and why, you know, and why should anybody else care about it? Like what problem is it solving? That sort of thing. And a lot of times I'll give examples of, of stories and like Alex Gladstein has all these great stories about people, you know, living in places and this is their way of getting around, you know, dictators and, and bad circumstances. And I give people those examples and they say, well, you know, yeah, if you live under a dictator, I guess it's good. And I'm like, well, okay, but if we're, trying, if we're trying to think about things that benefit humanity, right, um, helping out people who live under dictatorship is probably at the top of the list of what we want to accomplish. Yeah. And I think, I think actually it's more than half. Is it? I am sure he's, I've heard Alex say it's more than half the planet live under some form of authoritarian regime. I mean, if you've got something that could help 50% of the population of the world, I mean, 
I love also the fact that I asked you what's your criticism. You came back and told me something you liked about it. Well, we, uh, well, I guess though, I guess it depends on you know what we're talking about. Like, is it like, um, like I don't think that it's optimal. Like, if we were going to design, you know, something, uh, you know, uh, if you were going to design something that had um, certain, like, uh, like if you were going to ask economists, okay, like what is a good money or what does a good money look like? You're going to get a lot of different answers, and Bitcoin is not going to be consistent with all of those answers. Now, I don't. Now, in some cases, that's good because um, their answers would be bad. But the, um, but I think, but it doesn't need to be optimal in any sort of sense, uh, you know, in in the way that I see it. Um, and and also, you know, like if you think about those examples, like like Finney was talking about, and you think of what's going on in free banking, like you know, banknotes. Under a competitive system, when you have you know banknote issuance, like the banknotes were just ways to scale the system, right? And they were they were convenient and they and they sort of allowed it to scale. And you know you could look at that and you could say, well, yeah, but you know sometimes you know banks didn't make good on these promises or or you know there were all these other problems. And and I agree, but the thing is is that um, there are trade offs to everything, right? And and the thing that kind of was interesting to me about this is that this seemed to give people um, a way of sort of opting out. Like I really like, I mean, I really like Greg Foss's analogy of like Bitcoin as like a credit default swap, you know, like, because in a way that's what it, you know, in a, in a way that's what it is, even if you don't think of it that way, right? Like that if something terrible happens to your currency, um, this is a, you know, this is, you know, this is potentially a, a way uh, to protect yourself against that and to, sh- and to insure yourself against that. And I think that, you know, to a large extent, I think that's what the digital gold analogy is like. It's, it's sort of, let's go back to this thing that exists independent of some individual's control um, and, you know, allow people to uh, to store their wealth without having to worry about manipulation and, and um, the whims of their, uh, of their leader. So would you say, I've observed this fairly when I say you're almost, I feel like you're almost telling me like Bitcoin just is what it is. It's just another thing. Like we have dollars, pounds, we have gold, we have oil. Bitcoin is just another thing and individuals will find their use for it rather than trying to overthink what it could be or what it should be. Yeah, I think um, periodically it it pops up and... uh, periodically it pops up with Bitcoiners over the years where, you know, certain Bitcoiners will say things like, uh, Bitcoin is, and that's good enough. And I think like, that's probably like a really good way to think about it is that, um, I mean, I, I find it really funny actually to think about this because like the whole point, like, like the, the whole ethos of the, of, of Bitcoin is kind of like about decentralization and like taking um, away control of money from people who can, you know, manipulate the supply or whatever. And, you know, there are all these narratives about decentralization and why this is good and uh, how this protects you from things. Um, but then a lot of the discussion is sort of about, well, like, how can we just make this, uh, something that already exists in our world? Um, and, but maybe just, just better or something like that. Or how, how can we integrate this into everything that we already do? And, you know, uh, and, and sort of thinking about what that looks like. Um, I, I just think it's too hard to think about what that looks like. And so to me, I would rather just think about what it is, what it does. And, you know, um, 
uh, and things like that. You know, that's 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 good enough. Does it come up when you're teaching? Uh, yes, it generally comes up um, at some point because people know that I write about it. Okay. So I have students who stop by my office and you know, like we'll say, um, like sometimes it's because they want to write like a, a undergrad thesis or something, and they say like, "Hey, I've got this idea." And I see that you work on this. Maybe you want to like um, talk to me about it. Sometimes I just get students to just show up because they want to talk to somebody about it, and they just see that, and you know, that I write about it and assume that you know, this is a friendly face to talk to. I guess. Um, but that sounds like private conversations. Do, do, does it come up when you're teaching in class? Um, is it integrated in? When I teach money and banking, I teach about Bitcoin. Okay. Um, we usually spend like I would say like the last two weeks on on thinking about um, Bitcoin in the context of everything else that they've learned. So in money and banking, we're teach, uh, you know they they learn a lot about um, how the monetary system works, how the financial system works, how we got here, right? Like what did what did the monetary and financial system used to look like? Um, you know how do banks operate? What is you know what? How do we think about financial crises? That sort of thing. And then we kind of get to the end and. We, and, and I kind of just explain what it is and how it works. And then I say, okay, so let's think about various aspects of what we talked about. You know, what are the costs and the, and the benefits? Um, a lot of mainstream economists are very dismissive of Bitcoin. Um, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's like some people really struggle with it? Um. It's hard. It's hard to know. I think. Um, I think part of it is is just like being something new, is actually really, um, you know, it's kind of just like an impediment because I think, especially early on, lots of people were like, "Why do you want to write about this? Why do you care?" Like it's like a fad kind of thing. But but the way that I was thinking about it was completely different at the time. Like what I was thinking about is is that everything we've ever written down in terms of like monetary theory was based on things that we had observed in the world, right? Like as, a, as economists, we don't get to run experiments, which is a good thing. Um, but everything, like, so every model we have is based on, well, you know, if you're going to write down a model of like how commodity money works, well, you can look at the gold standard and you have some idea of how the gold standard worked and you can, and, and so, like, your theory is informed by these things you've already observed. And for me, um, for me, like, Bitcoin wasn't, was a way that you could kind of test out theory against something that didn't exist when any of these theories were written down. And in particular, like, there was a paper uh, written by a guy named Ben Klein in the 70s, and it was about the competitive supply of money. And his whole thing was, is like, um, so it was in the seventies, he was at UCLA. They were thinking a lot about, you know, the end of Bretton Woods. Um, and they were thinking a lot about, you know, competition and money and things like that. Um, but one of the difficulties is, would this be competition in like fiat money? So like, how would you have any sort of competitor to the U S dollar or the British pound or something like that? Um, if it was, you know, backed by gold or something because the government could always just say like, no, that's not money or, or something. And so Klein's paper was all about like, could you have a competitive supply of fiat money? And the sort of interesting thing about the paper 
is that you think that the obvious thing that somebody would say is uh, like, no, like clearly you couldn't have this because um, you would just have, there's no constraint on note issuance, right? So everybody would just issue as, you know, tons of money. And what Klein points out in that paper is like, well, that's not like, that's not exclusively true because you, by operating your bank and issuing money, like you're earning a profit. And so if you were to just print up a bunch of money um, and like just buy a bunch of stuff with it and make yourself wealthy, but then, you know, the bank would go under because nobody would want to hold these notes anymore. And, um, and so maybe that profit motive would constrain you from, from printing too much. Uh, but his point was at the end of the paper was essentially like that the, you know, to have this sort of a system uh, where you have this non-redeemable money, as long as the present discounted value of all your future profits were greater than the uh, than the benefit from just hyperinflating, uh, then, you know, you would just keep operating as normal. But the problem is, is that he says, you know, like, well, but you have to trust that the bank could commit to doing that sort of thing. And so one of the things for me when I saw Bitcoin was that I saw it as kind of answering, like, um, it, it, it kind of solved Klein's problem, right? And it solved it in two ways. You don't have to trust an, an, an issuer. Um, but then also, like, the supply is determined in the code. And so you can't, so you can't change the supply. So you don't have to worry that somebody's just going to hyperinflate one day. And then it's all decentralized. So you don't have to worry about the person controlling the system just hyperinflates it all away. And so to me, like I, I saw the connections between Klein's paper and Bitcoin because you have this asset. It's not redeemable for anything, right? And, um, and I just thought like, well, this is really fascinating because it relates to this kind of thing. And I think that when it comes to academics, a lot of them, um, I think, like just maybe haven't thought about it in that way. Um, I think some of them are kind of dismissive of it because they thought it was a fad. I think some of them are dismissive of it because they think that this is just um, this is just like a giant bubble and people are going to get wrecked and um, you know and so they you know they they just don't have any interest in it. Um, and I think some people just think like this isn't solving a practical problem for me, so why should I why should I care about it? And um, and like I said, you know, like it, it doesn't you know, like my, my interest isn't about it solving a practical problem for me. I could get by on the dollar system, you know, just fine. But the, um, but you know, for other people it is, it is much more important. David Zell said, we should ask you whether you think Bitcoin is a Ponzi. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good. Um, when I interviewed Jeff Snyder, he tried to describe, describe the perfect kind of money and he kind of ended up describing bitcoin and i told him yeah you've basically described bitcoin he said yeah but the problem with bitcoin is that it's inelastic money needs to be elastic what are your thoughts on that so this is what i meant when i said like it might not be optimal is like this is a common criticism that people say is that well you know like the supply doesn't change and you know if you think back on earlier parts of our conversations, like some of the fluctuations that we observe in the economy is because you have changes in money demand with no change in money supply. Um, and so some people sort of argue that, you know, this lack of um, elasticity is going to, uh, you, you know, just makes it 
um, impractical. Um, I would say a couple of things. So uh, you could imagine Hal Finney's world in which people just, um, I know this is going to be heresy to some people, but like where people issue claims to Bitcoin, right? And that are redeemable on demand. And that would just, and that would function something like a gold standard, but that would, um, but that would allow the money supply to expand um, without the supply of Bitcoin expanding, but it would be entirely demand determined. So it would be entirely demand determined because if you don't have the, the Bitcoin, then um, you can't redeem right now. We're clearly not in a situation where that kind of thing could exist now um, because you have all kinds of, uh, you know, scammers who are, uh, you know, issuing paper Bitcoin and there's no actual Bitcoin behind it and things like that. But you could imagine a situation where that emerges. And the thing is, though, is that if Bitcoin is really, if Bitcoin is just kind of a small thing, it doesn't, ha- then the elasticity of supply doesn't matter. If it's becoming um, a, if it's going to become like a, you know, um, if it's going to become, you know, another money, you know, that competes with 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 other monies, then, um, then certainly you're going to have scenarios where people would be issuing those claims and that solves that sort of problem. And it solves that sort of problem. It can solve that sort of problem without creating inflation because you're just creating a claim. Are you talking about rehypothecating Bitcoin? No. So like, if you think about how the gold standard worked, you had banks and the banks would issue banknotes and the banknotes were redeemable in, you know, in terms of gold. Oh, so you're talking about people offering maybe banknotes against Bitcoin? Yeah, and so it would be fractional more, reserve lending against their Bitcoin. Well, I mean, whether it's fractional reserve or not would depend on you know, uh, it would depend on whatever the you know whatever sort of emerged in that competitive environment. You'd have different rates, different different maybe Bitcoin lenders. Yeah, so you could have, I mean, you could have different, like in a, in a competitive market, you should have, you know, some of, if there's a demand for, for something, you should, you should have it. So like if, if some people want, you know, a hundred percent reserves and they want to, you know, store their Bitcoin and, or, or like lend it out at term and then get it back at the end of the term or something like that. Like you can imagine something like that, or you can imagine something like our current banking system, um, where, you know, um, you know, they, the, the banks are issuing their own, you know, notes and the notes are redeemable for Bitcoin or something like the, like it was in a gold standard. So like you can solve that problem, but even if it's not that way, you know, like there are other scaling solutions that can solve the problem. So you've, um, it's hard to, it, like, it's hard to predict these things. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, but like one of the things that allows Bitcoin to scale is that, you know, it's not like exchanging a dollar. So if I'm, if I'm Coinbase and a bunch of people buy Bitcoin and they want to withdraw it to their own wallet, I can send one transaction to a bunch of different people's wallets. And that allows Bitcoin to scale. Um, you know, you think about uh, lightning payments and things like that, that allows it to scale. So, um, but but also if you imagine a scenario where, like if you think about the gold, like so if you think about the, the gold standard example, if there was like, if we had just reached, so suppose we were still on the gold standard and there, and we had reached like the maximum supply, there's no more gold left, we can't find anymore, right? Well, the supply would be fixed and you could have banks issuing banknotes redeemable in terms of gold, but what would happen is you would just have like a deflationary economy. You would have prices would fall on average at the rate of economic growth year in, year out. And so um, 
it would be a huge adjustment. If you were designing a system to keep stable prices, you would not pick something with a fixed supply. But I think the thing that people ignore about that is that the fixed supply is actually like the big benefit, right? If the, um, you know, because I mean, I, I hesitate to say this. You look at Ethereum, okay? You can like say it. Okay. Their supply schedule, it just changes like at a whim, right? The developers yeah. say, oh, well, now we're going to burn some ETH every time, you know, uh, people do a transaction. Well, you're changing monetary policy. And so like one of the things, um, like one of the reasons that the fixed supply for Bitcoin works is that in order for that to change, you would have to change the code. But in order to change the code, you would have to have consensus. Well, if you are somebody who's running a node, you have no incentive to change the code to have more Bitcoin. Because conceivably, if you're running a node, you're holding Bitcoin. So if you increase the supply, you're diluting the value of the Bitcoin you have. So you have no incentive to do that. If you've got some kind of monetary policy that's working in the um, you know, now you have various different interest groups who benefit from one monetary policy relative to another. And so now you could get changes. And so on the one hand, like, is it optimal? Well, no, if I just want stable prices, um, you know, or if I want the supply to adjust to, you know, to, to demand, then, you know, yeah, the fixed supply is a cost, but the fixed supply is like the thing that makes it work. Right. And it's the thing that keeps it, um, you know, decentralized and that solves that client problem that I mentioned earlier. Mm. I have one final question. What do you think about nation state adoption of Bitcoin like with El Salvador? My attitude on my my attitude on El Salvador is maybe a little bit different in the sense that um, when it comes to El Salvador, relying on the IMF is not um, is not a long-term solution for them. And so if they want to experiment with Bitcoin, like I don't really see a problem with it. Okay. Uh, but, but my problem is sort of like nation state adoption in general creates a lot of different issues. Um, so, I mean, like when Russia invaded Ukraine, there were these rumors that the Russians were going to start selling, you know, like oil for Bitcoin or something like that. And like, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's a good, uh, thing because it makes Bitcoin more political. Um, I think if you go back to like other things that I said about, you know, the creation of the Bank of England, the manipulation of the gold standard, um, you know, th this was essentially done because the state had adopted, you know, the gold standard. And then they, uh, you know, and then they made all of these sorts of changes. You know, I mean, in the United States, the, the Constitution even says like, oh, you know, like, um, you know, there, there's... You, there's nothing about monetary policy in the Constitution, but the but but it's been interpreted as oh well, it says here that the government can regulate the value of the money. Well, if you think about you know the 1700s, what they were talking about is you know like they get to determine you know how much silver is in a quarter, right? They're not talking about uh, you know reverse repos and uh, <laughs> you know, quantitative easing, right? Uh, but that's what but that's tends to what, happen with, with state adoption. The other thing I'll say about El Salvador, because this is something that I wish more people would talk about is like, how do we know how much Bitcoin El Salvador actually has? Because they don't, question. they don't, there's no proof of reserves coming from El Salvador either. Like I know that they, they tweet out that they bought, you know, more Bitcoin or there's a story that shows up in, you know, uh, on Coindesk or like the wall street journal or something about them buying more, but one a day, wasn't it? Yeah. 
but there's no, like, but we don't have like proof of reserves and look, like I don't live in El Salvador. So like, I mean, they're not accountable to me, but I do think that that's one thing that people who are enthusiastic about it should actually think about is, um, you know, how do we know what they have and whether they're holding it and, you know, and, and what's really going on there. Like, I think that, you know, uh, they should be sort of more transparent about what they're doing. Really, really enjoyed this, Josh. Uh, if people want to follow up, if they want to follow you, read some of your work, where would you like us to send them to? Uh, so I'm on Twitter at Rebel Econ Prof. So it's mostly shit posting, I think. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, have a, I have a newsletter that I write with one of uh, my friends that's just about like, you know, using basic economic concepts to understand things. Uh, that's called Economic Forces. Um, and, you know, whenever there's some sort of crypto scam, I usually write about that on there. Um, I have stuff about FTX and Luna and all that fun stuff there. Um, Hex. And uh, no, I haven't written about that. Uh, but, uh, but you know, that is also a scam. Um, but yeah, so I guess th those are probably the two easiest ways to find me. Also, if you Google me, like my faculty page will probably come up, although I can't imagine anybody wants to read my... Uh, journal articles or anything like that but if they do they're there so google me well this was amazing thank you josh really really enjoyed this i hope we get to do this again sometime um and i also know you're involved with the bpi guys who yeah. this feels like a bpi trip at the moment it does We've had matthew pines david zalon um uh so good luck with that and please stay in touch i'd love to do this again sometime yeah thanks a lot i really enjoyed it great okay what'd you make of that do you enjoy that show with josh I thought it was fascinating. It was really cool to sit down and talk to an economics professor and just get behind how he approaches teaching and the role Bitcoin plays in that. So, yes, very cool. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for coming on the show. Big thanks to Danny for digging this one out. Always looking for interesting new guests. Yeah, if you've got any interesting new guests you think we should have on the show, you can drop us an email about that. We will consider anyone. We do like to have as broad a range of guests as possible. As I said, I'm out in Texas. I'm recording this new film, part three of Follow the Money. Um, in Austin, but I'm going to be heading up to Dallas tomorrow. I'm also then going to be heading up to Tulsa. I think we're going to some kind of Bitcoin meetup, which will be pretty cool. Looking forward to getting that out. Anyway, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do get in touch. My email address is hello at what Bitcoin did. I will get back to you as soon as possible. All right, have a great week, and I'll see you all on Wednesday.